Perceptions. Chapter 8. Part 1. Commute. On November 4th, Daphne and I checked into the hospital for her planned cesarean. Her sister was a nurse in labor and delivery, and she had recommended a surgeon that was supposed to be the best we could find. Everything about the day felt different from when she went into labor with Pepper. We spent so much time planning and prepping for our first baby that we thought we knew what to expect. This time, we felt like we weren't in control of anything and were uncomfortably dependent on hospital staff. We were lucky to have her sister there to handle everything. They took Daphne back for prep and got me outfitted in a protective gown with a hairnet and gloves. When they were ready to start the procedure, they brought me into the operating room, and I was immediately overwhelmed by the number of people present. In the very center of the chaos was Daphne, laying on her back with just her head exposed. A large plastic tarp hid the rest of her body, and I could see her surgeon and his assistants getting ready on the other side. Several nurses rushed from station to station, and I felt like I was in the way. They motioned me toward a chair at the head of Daphne's bed, and I slowly walked over to her, happy that I had a designated safe spot next to someone I knew. I sat down and said hello to her while trying to cover the look of worry on my face. I wanted to hold her hand or stroke her hair, but I was afraid, not knowing what I could or could not touch. Everything felt so intimate the last time we were in this situation, and time had slowed to a crawl. Now, it all felt strictly procedural, and within five minutes of sitting down, a nurse had already asked me if I would like to cut the umbilical cord. I assumed she was asking if I wanted to cut it when the time came, but then I heard Jade cry for the first time, and I was stunned to find he had already been delivered. I most certainly did not want to cut the umbilical cord. It held no real significance for me. It's kind of gross, to be honest, and I didn't want to screw it up somehow. He was lying on a small table surrounded by medical equipment. The world around us was running at a speed that blurred into an indistinguishable mess of yellow and white. In the middle of it all was the most beautiful little boy I had ever seen. Everything in the room grew silent for a long moment. The nurse wrapped him in a blanket, and I brought him to the chair next to his mother so they could meet for the first time. Jade was a super mellow baby, and Daphne was having an easier time feeding him, so it wasn't long before we were able to introduce him to Pepper. We were worried about how our princess would handle having a little brother, but she was so sweet and gentle with him. It's hard not to feel like we may have overreacted by trying to control so much of Pepper's experience. I regretted fighting with you about screen time but we can't rule out that it may have gone so well because we had planned it out so carefully. I had finally worked long enough at the hospital that I could take paternity leave, so I stayed home and played with the babies. I also used the time to start applying to new jobs. I had spent the last nine years working in human medicine, but I had always wanted to work with animals since I was a little kid. A few veterinary places were hiring, but the salary was significantly lower than anything I could find on the human side. Humans rarely get sick with anything interesting, so if you've worked in a large hospital for as short as one year, you've seen just about everything. Animals, on the other hand, are disgusting and are constantly getting sick with the gnarliest things. Not to mention all the variation between species. The more I learned, the more I was tempted to take a veterinary job. Luckily, 
a job with the top-ranked veterinary lab came available that summer, and it was the only place paying veterinary scientists similar to the human side pay scale. I received a call back the same week and accepted their offer. The lab was in a cool hippie town about an hour-long commute away, but we had always hoped we could move there someday. I would make the commute for several years after taking the job because we could never afford to live there, but it was worth it. The commute wasn't necessarily all that bad. With a newborn and a two-year-old, two hours of alone time was an opportunity Daphne would have killed to have. I would listen to audiobooks, podcasts, or good music. After you and I had a few more awkward vacations together, I started to prefer the silence. I would overanalyze every interaction we had as I drove to work. I'd think about my relationship with you, my brother, and my mom, just as I always had my entire life, but something significant had changed. I was now thinking of it from the perspective of a father rather than a son or little brother. I'd put my car on cruise control for two hours a day and reflect. I hated having to commute, but I probably wouldn't have taken that time for myself if I hadn't been in that situation. We often miss the silver linings in life when we're too caught up in actively hating the task. While thinking of all my various relationships, I couldn't help comparing each scenario to what I would do with my kids. I couldn't imagine there was anything Jade could do that would make me want to abandon him the way my mother had done to me. Even if he felt I had failed him and he didn't want me around, I'd still do everything I could to be there for him. I couldn't imagine silently watching Pepper fall into the grip of addiction. For drug use specifically, I felt more prepared to deal with it if Pepper ever went down that path. I also realized I am likely far more prepared for that possibility than you were, but we can sometimes compensate for our lack of experience by learning to be creative. Part 2. Toughen them up. I know I wasn't always the easiest to deal with, but I also don't feel like you tried to adapt when things weren't working. I suffered for so long, but I don't need to blame anyone for anything. I don't need anyone to be at fault for what I regret in life. All I need is to understand what happened so I can learn from it and use what I've learned to protect my children. If I can identify the mistakes you made, I don't necessarily need you to know you made them, nor do I need you to apologize for them. I need to figure out what mistakes you made and analyze what impact they had on my life so that I can make sure that the effect I end up having on my kids is as positive as possible. I have to be able to recognize my triggers and cope with my stress in healthy ways so that my children never lose me to addiction. I wrote this song about Pepper as I thought about her and our impact on each other.
Understanding these things and going through this process is extremely difficult. So far, I've gone through the analysis and adaptation alone. In writing this book, I have made progress toward understanding my addiction, and I feel I've experienced significant personal growth in a short time. Faster alone, further together, as the saying goes. For better or worse, I want to share what I've learned during this journey. I want you to know about the good and the bad. I'm interested in going further than just awareness. I'd like to improve our relationships and, in doing so, bring our family closer together. There's also the chance that this book will only drive a wedge further between us. I cannot control how you will react to learning about who I am, but I'd rather you dislike me for who I am than merely tolerate me for who I am not. 
with my brother, understanding him and the way he has made me feel about myself provides me a guide for which characteristics of his I do not wish to sustain in my behavior. His personality and demeanor have permanently imprinted on my subconscious reactions, how I mean tease my wife and when I forget to show my admiration and pride in my children. On multiple occasions, my wife has told me she doesn't like to be teased. I have neglected her feelings a thousand times, saying I only tease her to get a rise out of her because I like getting her all riled up. I've even told her that it's a form of flirting. I must remind myself that it no longer counts as playing if she doesn't like it. If I don't stop after learning what she doesn't like, then I'm only choosing to bully my wife. Can an argument be made that she needs to relax and stop taking things so seriously? Sure it can, but who cares if you win that argument when you're all alone, wishing you had spent more time reminding her how much she meant to you instead. As a husband, it's not my job to toughen up her and the kids, it's my job to help them feel safe and happy. I failed to appreciate this about my behavior until I recognized my brother in that behavior. I have learned that mean teasing is how I deal with frustration and stress. When I come home after a long day, I want space and need time to decompress. I love my wife dearly, so I think I'm just playing around with her, but subconsciously I'm keeping her at arm's length by teasing her. It's a warning for her to keep some distance. Considering she doesn't like being treated that way, it would be better for both of us if I instead let her know what I needed from her with love and respect. I also want to model appropriate behavior for my children so that when they grow up, they will love and respect their partners and demand that treatment for themselves. I hope that if my children ever found themselves in an abusive relationship, they'd recognize it because I had set the standard of how a man should treat his partner. I can't live with the thought that I will have doomed my children to a life of abuse by making that sort of behavior feel like the norm. Providing for a family is about more than just financial stability. We must set our children up for success by ensuring that the little voice inside their heads is confident and optimistic. What is the point in working so damned hard to surround our children in abundance if it leaves them empty on the inside? When I thought of leaving a child empty on the inside, a rush of emotions flooded my mind, and I spent most of my commute thinking about my relationship with my mom. I watched my wife's life change drastically as she went from an independent, career-focused young woman to a stay-at-home mother. My life also radically changed when we had kids, but I got up early each morning and headed back to work. Work was a brief escape back into the life I had been living before we had kids, and I could focus on my career goals and interests. Daphne was left to focus on cleaning the house and providing non-stop education and entertainment to out-of-control toddlers. That selfless sacrifice to ensure our kids had the best head start in life wasn't always as easy as she made it look. It wasn't always easy for my mother either. I remember her telling me about a party you had at the house. It was a bunch of people from work and their wives. She was having a good time socializing since you both enjoyed hosting and making your friends laugh. As she moved around the room, everyone was talking about places they had been and things they had accomplished. My mom became self-conscious about having nothing to add to the conversation. She hadn't traveled, she hadn't gone to college, or started some exciting career. She was stuck at home with the kids, for lack of a better spin on it. My mother's feelings of inadequacy were just the first steps down a long road toward low self-esteem. Seeing you around the young and beautiful women in the office were the first sparks of her jealousy and poor self-image. As I sat in my car, driving the hour to work each morning, I couldn't help wondering if Daphne felt the same way. 
Working at the university has me surrounded by young college students in an exciting town far away from the dishes and crying babies. It's hard to imagine she doesn't resent me a little, even subconsciously. While driving, I quickly pulled my phone out of my pocket and texted her, I love you, thank you for all you do for us. I realized that I hadn't imagined my mother's timeline at any point from the perspective that she wasn't lying. My brother had painted so much of my perception that I never listened to anything my mother said. I wanted answers, but I only wanted her to tell me what I already thought I knew. Is it possible my brother had been gaslighting me, and the lies my mother told were all truth? I know my brother exaggerated the truth and pressured me to adopt his point of view, but I'm less sure of his purpose. He hated his mom, so maybe turning me against her was part of his plan to stick it to her, or perhaps he just found it funny. He was no stranger to putting people down for laughs. For example, he once convinced his future wife that I had sex with our family dog. Part 3. The Alamo My brother was working one day and noticed the house next to the property he was at had a small pen with pit bull puppies that looked malnourished and abused. In the litter was a small white one with a black spot around one eye, not unlike the dog from the little rascals. This puppy was more intelligent than the rest and would wedge her little body between the doghouse and the fence and then wiggle her way up and over every time she saw my brother. The little dog would run into Shannon's arms, and he couldn't stand leaving her in such poor conditions. He called animal services and had the dogs rescued, but he kept the little white dog. Around the same time, Reggie Miller had busted his eye and missed the first few games of the 1996 NBA playoffs. My brother named the little black-eyed puppy Reggie, and she meant a lot to him, but you hated her. You didn't want another dog, and she struggled with potty training at first. When Shannon left for college, he took her with him, but when he ended up living in an apartment that didn't accept pets, he asked you to take her. You initially refused, but I promised to take care of her for him. I would clean up the backyard, a task known as the Tootsie Roll Patrol. Reluctantly, you allowed it, and I took on the responsibility of caring for his dog. Instead of being grateful that I'd help him out the only way I could as a little kid, he told his girlfriend I would have sex with that dog. He meant it as a joke, but his execution for pulling off the prank neighbored gaslighting. Jokes and mean teasing are meant to be in jest, but that doesn't mean they can't go too far. You can hurt someone's feelings with a poorly timed joke and push someone over the edge with too much teasing as it becomes bullying. Gaslighting is different. When you gaslight someone, you intend to get them to believe something that isn't true, and you challenge their sanity when they question your truth. Depending on the power structure, influence, consistency, and intention, gaslighting can rewrite someone's perception to serve any purpose the abuser wishes. His girlfriend knew me well, so she wouldn't have believed him if he had simply joked about it. For her to believe him, which she did, he would have had to convince her I could do such a thing by destroying her perception of my character. He had to rewrite my personality in her mind for her even to begin humoring the idea that I would do that. He was likely just teasing and had taken the joke too far, but I sometimes wonder if there was an ulterior motive to his joking. I can't think of any positive reasons for saying it, so all that remains is a hateful purpose. I have anxiety about the purpose of my brother's actions, and I know I shade his actions with my own projected insecurities. It feels like gaslighting because I think he wants to manipulate how Renee feels about me. If my brother would try to convince someone that I would fuck his dog, 
what would keep him from using that skill he had to turn me against my mom. He believes with conviction that she had intentionally hurt him, and maybe taking me away from her was a subconscious ploy for revenge. I was afraid that loving my mom would let him down. He would get so upset when I would defend her, and he eventually trained me to believe that writing her off was the only option. His actions were always calculated, so I think he had his intentions for trying to convince me I was crazy for loving her still. Then again, Shannon had also tricked Renee into believing that Bruce Lee died defending the Alamo. When viewed without my projected anxiety, he may have just enjoyed messing with his girlfriend and never considered the collateral damage. There may be nothing nefarious about his actions, and I've just been the butt of his jokes. I want things to be more complicated, but it might be as simple as him just being an asshole with a sense of humor. My brother has created a narrative about our mother that he recites to anyone who will listen. When that narrative is questioned, he becomes defensive and gets upset about alternative points of view as if it is challenging his traumatic experience. Ironically, he hates his mother for doing the exact same thing. When I realized that much of what I knew about my mom came directly from his mouth, I asked myself, what if I were to clean the slate, forget everything he has ever said, and approach these issues without his influence? How might I view my mom differently without all my preconceived notions about her actions? She may have hurt us both, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. My altered perception of her actions influenced my behavior toward her, and she may have been responding by attempting to indemnify herself. All these years, I might have been forming my opinions of her based solely on her retaliation for feeling attacked. It is illogical to judge people by the way they react to your mistreatment of them. We were stuck in a vicious cycle of pain that had spiraled out of control so fast that none of us could rightfully assign blame to anyone. The truth is, we all could have been better to each other, so I tried to imagine what life would be like if I had given her all benefit of the doubt and supported her more, regardless of right or wrong. To do that, I had to go back to the beginning of the timeline and proceed as if you did actually have an affair. If I could believe my mother, everything she did after the affair would make perfect sense. I grew uncomfortable in the seat of my car and realized I had long since passed my exit for work. I had zoned out so deeply thinking about the implications of such a reality that I had autopiloted my way into the next city. I turned around at the next exit and started thinking about it again, but I couldn't believe you could do it. On the surface, this book may not illustrate how much I love you or show how much respect I have for you. It might appear that I hate you or feel like you failed me as a father. It's quite the contrary in actuality. You remain one of the most influential people in my life, and, as hard as it might be to understand, that is why I have written this book. I did not write this with the intent of describing in elaborate detail every mistake you ever made. The last thing I want to do is negatively alter anyone's perception of you when they read this book. That is not the message I wish to portray. The contents of this book represent a yearning for a level of intimacy I wouldn't be able to achieve with anyone other than you. I want to be as close to you as possible, and I don't feel I can truly do that if I am dishonest about who I am. No matter how close we get, you'll only be close to the person I am pretending to be, not who I really am. I know your heart and admire how good of a person you are. That's why I can't imagine you having an affair, even as a thought experiment. The affair would be awful enough, but it would also mean you allowed my mother to take the fall, that you watched my brother and me lose our relationships with her so you wouldn't have to admit to infidelity. It would mean she was a sick because you drove her crazy. 
while I may believe there are things you could have done differently along this timeline, I know you, and it's simply not possible that you hid an affair from all of us. Then I realized it didn't have to be true if it still felt true to her. For her, there's little difference between knowing you had an affair and believing you had an affair. When we were leaving for Texas, your coworkers threw you a going-away party. One of the gifts they gave you was a photo album of people around the office. Included in these photos were several pictures of women from around the office posing together and wearing nothing but dark blue lingerie. Those photos were indicative of a very different place and time for the male workforce. Understanding the context of the gift, those pictures were likely an inappropriate gag, especially considering the circumstances for why you were leaving. It also highlights how comfortable everyone was with you around the office. Basing my judgment on those photos alone, I can picture an atmosphere of playfulness and near-harassment type behavior that was the norm. If one of these women sat in your lap at work, would you push her off in disgust? Probably not, and it probably wouldn't have registered to you as inappropriate, either. You also can't deny that you are an attractive man, so any flirtatious behavior was likely directed toward you more than most men at the office. This can all be true without making your faithfulness to my mom false. Regardless, her perception of your loyalty faltered at some point, and you didn't do enough to mitigate her concern. Letting those feelings grow over time. I imagine you tried it first. You were probably shocked she thought something was going on and dismissed it. When she brought it up again, you probably became a little defensive. You probably started to get angry when she wouldn't let it go. It was likely too late by the time she was hitting you for calling her Sherlock. Part 4. Absolution To be perfectly honest with you, it doesn't matter to me anymore. When I was younger, I wanted to know the truth about everything that happened. I needed to blame someone for it, but I know now that everyone was at fault at one point or another. A family does not fall apart because of one person, it's a failure of the bunch, and we all missed opportunities to be there for each other. My goal now is not to identify who was at fault, it is purely an endeavor to understand our actions and find ways to avoid making the same mistakes again. I suspect her actions before and after the divorce were predicated on her belief that you had an affair and got away with it. She believes that you had an affair but that she only lacked the physical evidence to prove it. She was so confident that she decided to get you back by having an affair of her own. They say unwarranted marital jealousy is most often felt by those willing to do the thing they're worried their partner has already done. Maybe her poor self-image and feelings of inadequacy fuel the desire to search elsewhere, and when she started having those feelings, she projected them onto you as if you were feeling the same way about the women she feared. In the end, you were the one with that physical evidence she couldn't get on you. Man, I bet her world was spinning. How could she be to blame? You had started it, and you were the one that had an extramarital affair. She was only having revenge sex. It wasn't fair that you were getting away with everything. She would have to clear her name by telling anyone who would listen what really happened. I can't imagine what you were going through at the time. Your wife betrayed you in such a vile way and then attempted to slander your name. You handled the news so gracefully and you never once badmouthed her. Shannon would say terrible things about her, but you'd always stop him. Even to this day, you tell me how much you still love her, and I believe you. For every awful thing my mother did in response to thinking you had an affair, you would have had the right to do the same, but you didn't. When thinking about how things could have changed if certain people had acted differently, my mom had an opportunity to show us an example of how to have great strength during unbelievably tough times. 
Had everything she accused you of been confirmed, but she had instead reacted with thoughtfulness and civility, she would be the strongest woman I've ever known. To be so fully confident that her husband was having an affair and to have just packed her bags, left his ass, and then found a job for the first time in her adult life. To eventually buy her own house and then travel the world after retiring from said job. To have done everything she ended up doing, but without the revenge and mudslinging. If she would have handled it as you did. The divorce was ugly, and I watched as you let her have it all, down to the spice rack she felt so strongly about keeping. When she came for your kids, you again were selfless, thought only of me, and let me decide. When I chose to live with you, she couldn't believe it. Again, from the perspective of what she thought to be accurate, she couldn't understand how I could live with you, and she took it personally that I didn't believe her side of the story. The lies she spread about me were based on some truth if we assume the rest of her story also to be true. Now imagine, her life has imploded, and everyone was gone. She was left alone in Montana and had nothing. She must have hated you for getting away with it, taking me away from her, and filling my head with stories. She was probably so mad that you wouldn't admit everything and started drinking to cope with the pain. I guess stress responses are hereditary. I can't imagine how much she missed me, it probably hurt so bad not to see me every day as she had grown accustomed. She probably looked forward to the summers, maybe if I had enough fun, she could convince me to move back home with her. She had likely built up such a high expectation of how it would go, only for me to come home angry, wanting answers to questions she believed to be false accusations. It was probably hard to explain that while she had done some of the things Shannon was saying, it was more complicated than that. She'd try and tell me what you had done, but Shannon had already warned me she would lie about those things when I asked her. I never once listened to her, I just wanted her to admit something she didn't believe. As the years passed, I spoke to her less, and she assumed I didn't want her around anymore. She became suicidal, fueled by alcoholism, but not even that made me care about her. She confided in me, but I blew up and tried to drive off the road. She had told her stories for so long that she was starting to confuse reality and imputation. She was now telling people you used to beat her. She knew it wasn't true, but you had hurt her so badly that it felt like physical abuse to her. She wanted to convey that pain to people even if her story was mostly untrue. Then she felt a lump in her breast. As terrible as the diagnosis was, it created a pathway to forgiveness. We should have granted the absolution to her, but she had fostered so much bitterness that the reprieve never came. The doctor explained that with her condition, there existed a level of uncertainty around severity and outcome. While her prognosis looked good, there was potential for things to go poorly, as there always is in any diagnosis. She leaned in heavily on the worst aspects of the news and led with that. Her sons were telling people she was lying about her cancer, the same disease that destroyed her body image when she had both breasts removed. An illness that brought her to the doorstep of the unpredictability surrounding life and death. She had finally had enough suffering and found it would be easier to let us all go. She didn't want the constant reminder of the deplorable family she once had. It was all too painful. Nobody believed her, and nobody cared about her. Without us, she started traveling the world and enjoyed an idyllic life for about 20 years until I found her number through a cousin in Montana. My perception of her had changed, and now I had new questions for her. We talked about our mutual regrets and apologized for the things we had both held on to for too long. I immediately noticed that she was in a better place emotionally. She had moved on, didn't think about us anymore, and was genuinely happier for it. 
She was guarded initially but was thankful to see pictures of the kids she didn't know I had. She would comment, almost every time, how much Jade looked like me and how she regretted not being around to see my life. I was shocked by how much she had grown and how positive her outlook was. Soon the rumor mill had spread back to Shannon, and he made an off-handed comment about me talking to her again. I had deliberately kept it from him. This wasn't about him. In fact, it was about doing this without his influence. I sent him a message and asked him if he had ever taken the time to consider how she felt, not to imagine she was right about any of it, but to imagine if she sincerely believed she was right, how sane it made her perspective seem. He ignored every message I sent, but I wasn't surprised. At least he was staying out of my business, and I could try to have a relationship with my mother. Unfortunately, that didn't last long because my presence was too much of a sore spot for her. I asked her to share her experience with me, but not as I did when I was younger. I was curious about her perspective, and I was a clean slate without prejudgment. She chose only to tell me how bad of a son I was to her and then decided not to share anything else. I apologized and clarified that I didn't want to fight with her. I wanted to hear her story and understand her point of view. She stopped replying and ignored my phone calls. I sent her nice messages on Mother's Day and her birthday, but I never heard from her again.